one of the vice detectives that we've worked with, that was a vice detective for over 13 years, working sex trafficking cases solely, told us that the main reason she sees sex trafficking happening is because of the breakdown of the family. Sex trafficking is targeting this generation for exploitation. Brianna and Brandon Vales are igniting a rebellion to stop it. They're our guests on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year. The official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid, Brianna and Brandon Vales are the founders of Red Light Rebellion, an organization dedicated to stopping sex trafficking. They join us now on Win This Year. Brianna and Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for for having us. us. Yeah. We uh, noticed on your website, you have a statement that I want to start off this episode with because I really like how it describes not only the battle that you're fighting, I like how it describes the solution. It says, we are rebels, freedom fighters, who believe that the freedom of every individual is an inherent right because their value is inherent. Our generation is being bought and sold. So we are raising a battle cry to expose exploitation. We are determined to fight for freedom by connecting with and learning the stories of those around us, standing up for the marginalized and speaking out when we see someone oppressed. Join us as we rebel against sex trafficking through relationships and human connection. I love that. You're not only fighting against exploitation and human trafficking, you're doing it through connection which is a word and a solution and a strategy that has been mentioned on this show several times already. Mm. When and how did this idea come about to do this? What motivated you to create Red Light Rebellion? Yeah, so me and my friends actually started it when I was in high school. So I was at a church camp going to my junior year and they showed a documentary of a girl trafficked in Cambodia. And it really didn't connect with me emotionally. I was passionate about other forms of injustice. Um, but that night during worship, I really felt like Jesus told me to lead a movement against sex trafficking. And I was like, well, I don't want to go overseas. <laughs> and so I really didn't know what to do with that. Um, so I tried to forget about it. Six months later, my church said that they're going to help start an aftercare program locally in Arizona for um, specifically girls 12 to 18 years old, um, 17 years old, that would um, be trafficked in the United States. So that really opened up my eyes like, oh my gosh, this is a real problem right here. And then I learned that the average age of entry is about 13 years old into child sex trafficking. And so with that being the average, I was like, wow, this is like me and my friends, my little brother, his friends were actually the targets for this. So it really opened my eyes in a new way. And really thinking about that calling, like leading a movement, the only way I know how to do that is with youth. And so prevention, even though I'm very passionate about aftercare and I feel like um, God will lead me back to aftercare in one way or another, I really believe that like prevention is kind of like my niche right now. Absolutely. If we can prevent the problem from occurring in the first place, it takes so much less time and effort and resources and there's less heartache involved yep. than if we have to intervene or like mm-hmm. you said, if, if there's aftercare. Brandon, how did how and when did you get involved with this? Yeah, great question. So uh, 
we got married and then she was like, hey, do you want to work together? And I was like, sure. Uh, and so we actually both got married without jobs and we're like, yeah, let's be nonprofit and live on love. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was actually probably a year after we got married. Um, you, and, you know, uh, continuing with my story, like pretty much everyone that grew up post-internet uh, pornography had an effect on my life. Um, and for me specifically, it did progress to the point of addiction. And so um, in working through that on my own, uh, I've always wanted to do something about the effects of pornography. And uh, it was so funny because it wasn't until like a year after we got married that Brianna was like, man, I've always wanted to like have pornography prevention be a part of Red Light Rebellion. If we just had someone to like, you know, <laughs> that had experience with that. Uh, maybe we could do that. And I was like, wow, you know, you already know my story uh, and have this whole time. So why don't we do this together? And so that's really um, when I started to take more of a main role in Red Light Rebellion. So That's fantastic. Yeah. I love your transparency. That is something that's so important because it is affecting so many people at such a young age. Years ago, pre-internet, if someone was going to be exposed to pornography, they had to go to an adult bookstore or something like that it had to happen. Now a kid can be, as you know, sitting at their kitchen table in their own room room, not necessarily even looking for it and can totally. still stumble across it. Totally. So I have so much respect for your transparency. As you, you know, yeah. people who have lived through things like me educating on substance use recovery, yeah. Yeah. there's a connection you can create when you say, well, I didn't just read about this somewhere. I lived through this. And you know, speaking to high school students, you see that look in their eyes when they're like, okay, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Yeah, like, totally. you know what you're talking yeah. about here. What yeah. ages do you educate and where and how does this take place? Uh, yeah, our program is uh, geared for 7th to 12th grade for students. Um, we're mainly in classrooms is our main program right now. So we'll be uh, in the same classroom with students anywhere from one day to five full days, again, with the same group. Um, so it's cool. Depending if we get to be there longer, we get to like kind of get to know kids a little more and stuff. Um, and then we also do trainings for parents and professionals uh, and adults that work with students. And then we can do like youth groups or churches yeah, yeah. or other nonprofits that service students as well. Um, our programs probably like 97% of the time those in the classroom, which <laughs> yeah. is fun. I feel like in the last decade, especially, we've heard the phrase sex trafficking quite a bit, but there's still a lot of individuals that if you ask them to define it, they can't necessarily tell you what it is. In your definition, and I know the definition that you use, what is the criteria that makes up sex trafficking? Yeah, yeah uh, go ahead. Yeah, so it's force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of commercial sex. Um, so if someone 18 and over is engaging in commercial sex and any one of those three is involved, um, then they're considered a victim of sex trafficking. Um, so that can be straight prostitution, that can be through pornography or stripping, um, or even like uh, revenge porn or nudes being passed around. Um, and then with a child, that someone that's under 18, if they're engaging in commercial sex in any capacity, so if there's an exchange of something of value for a sex, sexual service, um, then they're automatically considered Because they can't consent. Correct. Correct. So, so it's a can, whole different deal at yeah. that point. And you can even hear youth say, I chose this, like I wanted this, or I consent to this. But the fact that they are legally a minor, like legally, it's, it's not possible. And so the law views it as the adult has the capacity to understand what's harmful to a child and a child may not understand the long-term consequences to their actions so they need to be protected under the law rather than face some of those consequences that really aren't helpful for their story they need more of like a recovery and rehabilitation approach rather than like a severe like jail consequence or something like that and not only are they not legally an adult yet with that you know at the age that you're talking about pre prior to 18 their prefrontal cortex not being mm -hmm. fully right. developed and you talk about some of them saying well I chose this mm -hmm. they don't fully understand the gravity of what it that is that 
that they're choosing, whether it is sex trafficking, whether it's drugs or alcohol, et cetera, they cannot grasp the full understanding Mm -hmm. of that. A statistic, now you already mentioned the average age that this begins at, which is alarming and just staggering. Mm -hmm. Another statistic that I saw on your website that you put out there to do away with myths, and I love that you do this, you're you're very deliberate about dispelling myths. You mentioned that 20% of those who are trafficked are boys. Do you still meet a lot of people who are surprised by that, adults who are convinced that this is something that's solely happening to preteen and teenage girls? Yeah, Yeah, I think a lot of the people that are surprised that about that are also the people that are surprised that sex trafficking is happening in America. (laughs) So usually, like, once people have the knowledge of, like, oh, okay, this is happening here, it's not – it kind of makes sense, like, okay, well, yeah, there's, like, a market for everything um, type of thing. And so I think – there's not too many people that once they understand um, the basics of sex trafficking in the states that uh, it's too much of a shock. I think the number 20 percent is kind of the shocker that it yeah, could yeah, be yeah. that much, which is that's like a, a rough estimate. And so because sex trafficking is so underground, the the statistics that we do have are so almost spectated, you know, like mm-hmm. we're, we're guessing at it, making educated yeah. guesses, of course. Um, and some statistics are more solid than others. Um, but that's the one where it's like, hey, like this is like really real. And it kind of goes past some of the stereotypes that we have on this. I think it's more the boys, the teenage boys that we talk to that are like, that wouldn't happen to me. Like, no way. (laughs) The adults are like, okay, that makes sense. Like Brandon said, there's a market for everything. Absolutely. And especially if someone's a runaway, if someone ends Mm -hmm. up on the street, they have someone they think is befriending them. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a place to stay. And it's it's a whole different situation when they find themselves in it. What are some other myths related to sex trafficking that are important that we do away with that might be obstacles to us being able to understand it fully yeah. and help those who are involved with it? Have you seen the movie Taken? <laughs> <laughs> um, great movie. Love it. Uh, I think the perception that people get from that movie is that sex trafficking happens through kidnapping. And that's probably the biggest stereotype that we get from people that um, I would say is probably a myth to bust. Because um, what we find is specifically with pimp-controlled sex trafficking – that pimps are using relationships to manipulate. They're not like driving down the street late at night in a white van trying to offer kids candy and throw them in and drive away real quick. Um, They're messaging people on social. Mm -hmm. They're just like hanging out at the malls. They're just like uh, at the park trying to build these relationships either as some sort of boyfriend or girlfriend, as a friend or a professional. Um, And that's probably the biggest, I'd say, spell. Yeah, which is why I think we target relationships so much because youth as they're growing up, they're realizing that like fam- they need more than just their family or maybe they even if they come from a good family, they need more than just their family. They're starting to rely more heavily on their peers mm-hmm. and influencing in that way. But then even if they come from a family that's not present or what they don't need, they're looking to meet those needs in other people. And so traffickers are really good at being able to identify that need and then become the solution for that need, whatever it is. And by gaining trust, they're learning about that victim, learning about their family, what they care about, what makes them building tick. rapport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if a trafficker, these bad guys are able to build that rapport, how much more so should the good guys and the safe adults in a child's life be able to do that? When you talk about what they're seeking, those teens or preteens are out there looking for, it begins to make sense why that average age is what it is, because that's the age at which kids often start going outside their immediate family or their family looking to have their needs fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And and I I keep honing in on that average age because in order to truly be preventative for us Mm -hmm. who are parents or for educators, et cetera, we have to put these preventative pieces in place prior to that age. (laughs) We have to have those conversations before that age. Brandon, you already mentioned this a minute ago when I talked about dispelling myths and you talked Mm -hmm. about 
about it not looking always like taken, you started to get into a list of how and where traffickers make their initial contact and how they begin grooming potential targets. Can you both go into that a little bit more, where and how that begins, what techniques they use, what platforms they use, et cetera? Yeah, totally. I, I know Brianna describes this really well, but um, basically anywhere where young people are hanging out, um, there is the opportunity for a pimp to build a relationship. So they're not really concerned with like what that looks like as much as going where young people are. Um, so. We see social media is where literally everybody is 24-7 all the time. Um, That's their primary tool to yeah, recruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they can be anywhere. We've heard of a story of a pimp that was um, in prison for something other than sex trafficking but was able to smuggle a phone with internet access and was recruiting and trafficking girls literally from jail. Wow. Um, and so, so we see that that's a very huge platform. And so it doesn't matter the social media platform. Traffickers are going to be on it trying to recruit in that capacity. Yeah. And I think it's um, sometimes hard for parents now, especially like mid to late 30s and older than that, to see um, the significance of social media with kids. And like sometimes to wrap our brains around like, holy cow, like a dude was in jail and talked someone into sex trafficking themselves from jail. <laughs> they weren't even physically they present. They weren't even physically there. Yeah. How does this happen? But um, just the social dynamic of growing up and so much significant for young people being wrapped up in not mm -hmm. just like the, cause, uh, which I'm like kind of right in the middle of those things. But like in high school, there's all the clicks and stuff that everyone had, like what group are you a part of now? That's on a worldwide scale. Yes. Um, so the stakes feel so much higher now on social media than I think um, they ever have before. And so, um, yeah, that's, I think a huge piece to kind of understanding why it's happening this way. Um, so We kind of explain it in the classrooms with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so everyone has the basic need for like shelter. Everyone has the basic need for love and belonging, for purpose, for safety. And so a trafficker is just identifying which one of those needs does that person need. Um, and then they're going to fulfill that. So if a trafficker is pretending to be a boyfriend or girlfriend, they're manipulating our desire for love and affection, which our brains are wired for that. Like human beings um, can't go without love and affection. Um, and if we don't, like very severe consequences um, are brought up. And so traffickers are just trying to identify that need and then just playing that person, trying to, to be the best fit for that situation and then isolating that victim as well. So even if the victim comes from a good family that is truly loving, like as soon as you hit typically those teenage years, you're going to start to get some sort of like butting heads. Like <laughs> yep. that happened with me and I came from like a very, very loving home. Same here. But there are times when I was like, I don't I don't believe my parents love me the way that I need it. Um, and so that would have been easy for a predator to come in and say, well, I've got your back the way that your parents don't. I get you in a way that your parents don't. Um, and so it doesn't matter what type of family or not family a child comes from that those basic desires can produce vulnerabilities in a child if they're being targeted by a predator. We talk about that in our internet safety presentation where yeah. they'll try to drive a wedge not only between the child and the parent, but any other healthy people, exactly. adult yeah. or yeah. friends yeah. in their life. Yeah. Oh, your friends don't get you. I get mm -hmm. you. Your parents don't think you're beautiful. I think you're beautiful. And they yeah. will lie and they will manipulate. Mm -hmm. And you mention an entry point that they use. And it's that hierarchy of needs, that need for love and acceptance. Do they look for someone who tends to be posting things that could indicate whether it's original content or they're sharing a meme, yes. no one loves me, no one understands. Is that to them something that they hone in on to choose that target initially? A hundred percent, totally. It's so easy to, if you go on anyone's account, usually within about 10 posts, you can tell where someone works, lives, or goes to school yeah. at. Um, and then with so many people posting so much stuff about their life, it's so easy just to, you know, take – 
30 seconds to profile stock someone and see what makes them tick. And so pimps are absolutely taking advantage of that opportunity. It's really popular popular right now for kids to do like on their stories on Instagram, one of those question boxes mm -hmm. that say, tell me something about myself or when did we first meet or things like that, which is fun to do. But to a predator, the way they view that is that kid's looking for attention. I'll give them the attention that they want. So things that seem very innocent um, can become a prime opportunity for predators. And so then once they start building that relationship, it's so common for kids to be sending nudes now. Um, mm -hmm. And so once like a trafficker can kind of get to that level, then they've got collateral to use against that child and start to blackmail them. Yep. And so then that's con the control piece starts to really be powerful. Where they can say, if your parents find out that you did this, they're yeah. never going to love you again. Another one of the lies that they use. And like you said, they use that for leverage. You yeah. talk about innocuous things on a social media profile that we don't look at, even as parents and think my child shouldn't be mentioning this, favorite movie, yeah. favorite music, yep. favorite sports team. Yep. They use that to build that synthetic rapport. Oh, that's my favorite movie too. Mm -hmm. And favorite. that's something that parents really need to be aware of as well. So that leads me to this. What can parents, uh, grandparents, guardians, other family members do to protect the kids in their lives against being approached and or groomed online or anywhere else by sex traffickers? Great question. Yeah. And I think um, kind of the initial response that we see a lot of parents have is, my kid is never going to be on social. Like, we're taking this thing away, locking I'm it down. Locking we're going to give them a typewriter. Be, oh, right. They're going to be so safe. I've heard that exact phrase. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> they're going to be so safe, but maybe not so happy, but at least safe, right? Um, and so I think uh, it's definitely important to have guidelines and restrictions and boundaries with social media. I think there's something that's extremely important, too, in teaching kids how to interact with others. And I think so navigating that on social media is a huge opportunity that parents have because eventually they're going to be 18, 19, and then they're going to be able to do whatever they want. And if they were just sheltered from this the whole time, then they're going to have no like frame of reference or moral compass to navigate this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see the way I phrase it is usually um, sometimes we see parents try and uh, shelter their kids instead of protecting their innocence, mm -hmm. where protecting the innocence is kind of guiding them through those steps. Um, having the conversations that are um, – not as common or sometimes awkward and uh, really approaching that and having that relationship and connection. Well, and I think it's recognizing that for kids, whatever adults are comfortable doing on social media, kids are going to take it to that next level, <laughs> yeah. levels that the adults might not even be able to anticipate. And so we encourage parents that any app that they allow their child to have access to, that parent has to have that app. Absolutely. They have to have an account and they need to get their friends on it, even if it's for the sole purpose of figuring out how that app works. Yep. And they need to do that prior to allowing their child to have access to that. Um, because when it's like, oh, they're like on Snapchat, but they've got like a private account. But when you don't realize that Snapchat's tracking your every move and you can actually go ghost mode so that it doesn't do that. Those are things that parents are going to understand if they're actually using those apps. Um, so I think that that's really important for parents to do a very practical thing. And then it's really gauging what's their child's maturity level. Um, some kids can handle things in ways that other kids can't. Um, and that's totally fine. It's no fault of the kid. Um, and everyone has different stories that really like impact that. We all have different thresholds in different areas of our life. And so really being discerning on what is that child's threshold. Um, I'm sure you guys talk about this in your social media media, um, education as well, but kind of creating a contract as a family Absolutely. saying, Hey, this is appropriate behavior online. This is inappropriate behavior online. And so if we see inappropriate behavior, these are the consequences and everyone signs and agrees to it. Um, and the child having input on that is helpful as well. But then if you do find things like we will get kids messaging us being like, Hey, I got this really weird message from this person. They'll send us screenshots. Like Obviously, a predator, don't know if it's sex trafficking or not, but like that's not someone to talk to. Have you talked to your parents? Well, they're scared to talk to their parents. 
They don't want to lose their phone. They don't want to lose their phone. They're scared their parents are going to get dip- disappointed in them. There's a lot of shame. They're going to be incriminated. Yes. From mm-hmm. There's a lot of shame, yeah. like almost they brought it on to themselves rather than someone just targeting them. Um, so I think it's important for parents and having these conversations to try to take as much shame out of that conversation as possible. And if there are consequences doing that without shame. And so one of the big things that, that you can do for your kids is having their account on private and then making sure that anyone that reaches out to them that that child doesn't know is instantly blocked. A lot of kids will be like, hey, I don't know you. I'm going to block you. And then a conversation happens. It's like, don't even talk to the person. I'm like, just block them. That's what we do with trolls on our account. I don't even yeah. engage. I'm just like, sorry, you're gone. <laughs> so I love that you both talked about defining and modeling what is appropriate behavior online. You talked about using Brandon with them. And and not only explaining what the appropriate behavior is, but modeling it as well. There was a study, and you may be familiar with it, where they talked to teens who were sexting. And you mentioned, you know, sadly, sending nudes has become, quote unquote, normal. I hate to call it that, but it's become so common. And they were asking the teens, okay, to whom are you most often sending these? Now, the first few categories, the highest categories are ones like boyfriend or girlfriend, a crush, things like that. Now, as responsible adults, we don't want kids sending nude pictures of themselves to anyone. <laughs> yeah, totally. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a 14-year-old kid, you can fathom, I'm sending it to my boyfriend or girlfriend. Still don't want it, but you can comprehend that. Yeah. One of the categories, one of the answers was, I don't know. I don't know who this person is. I'm sending this to a complete stranger. And you talk about setting appropriate boundaries. There's a big boundary to talk about. Exactly. The example that we use is don't ever send someone a picture or video of yourself that you wouldn't be okay with the entire world seeing because you're running the risk of that. Yep. That same study then asked, okay, why are you sending these? What's your number one motivation? Mm-hmm. And the particular study I'm talking about, the number one reason was to be flirtatious. And I think it's so, so important sad. that when we sit down with our kids or kids that we work with or mentor, we explain what flirting is and what flirting isn't and what yeah. is appropriate within a relationship. We need to remember to the parents listening to this, the word flirtatious or flirting may mean something completely different to us than it's meaning to our teens right now. We need yeah. to make sure that yeah. we define that for them. Exactly. Now, you talked otherwise, about- culture will. Oh, absolutely. And that's why it's at this point. If we don't have that conversation, somebody else will have that for us. Yep. It's They're going to learn it from pop culture. They're going to learn it from social media. I, I've had parents say, whether it's the topic that we're talking about or alcohol or drugs, it's not fun. It's uncomfortable to talk about this. Well, if we don't, <laughs> yep. someone else will have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about how to be preventative, what are ways to protect this, protect kids up front. Mm-hmm. What if they have progressed? They have been contacted. They are being groomed. What are the signs and symptoms that parents or other adults need to look for that can indicate that a child is in the process of being groomed or perhaps already starting to be trafficked? I think a big piece is going to be isolation. So exactly what you had talked about before, like the trafficker is going to isolate that child from everyone safe or good in their life. And so if you start seeing a lot of behaviors in your child, especially that weren't there before um, in defiance and maybe running away or acting out, or maybe you think that they might have a device that you never gave them. Um, that's a huge indicator. Traffickers oftentimes will give them a second cell phone or something like that so that they can communicate without anyone else knowing. Um, those are probably really big. If the child's, um, um, sorry, uh, like school ID keeps going missing. You have to keep paying for another school ID and you're like, what the heck is wrong with you? Um, that could be an indicator. Um, grades dropping, teachers saying they are like falling asleep in class all the time. Um, if they're starting to become hypersexualized in ways that they weren't prior, that's a big one. Um, and I think if a, if a parent has filters on the phone or through the internet, through different, um, uh, 
technology that's out there that we can purchase and have like on our routers and, and the phones that can give like a huge indication kind of what what's the pattern of um a behavior that's happening online that we might not be able to see because i think that's going to be probably the first indicator is things that you can't see and then you start seeing them act out in different ways and if you see a shift like trauma cannot leave someone the same person and so trauma puts us into our limbic system which makes us very much fight or flight like we're we don't consider other people's feelings like we kind of don't care and some of that's kind of like teenage ish a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> our prefrontal cortex really isn't yep, there um, but when it doesn't seem like normal like teenage behavior that's when we start asking more questions um, and start digging deeper because it, it may be that they just sent a nude to their boyfriend or girlfriend and they shared it with one of their friends you know but that's still exploitive that's still a violation and so knowing kind of some of the questions to ask to dig deeper to see is is my child being groomed by someone um, or is this a product of kind of like their behavior within the cultural system that's not healthy for my child yeah and I think that requires um having that baseline of relationship with yes. your kid too um in which like if you're listening to this right now obviously that's awesome that you're a parent that's um like wanting to uh have your kids back and resource and all that stuff and so um, i think that is a really big deal and uh, we see i think parents sometimes want to provide the best for their kids and so they work really hard at providing that foundation um, but maybe aren't around as much or um, just aren't as available for the relationship or whatever that capacity or dynamic looks like. And so sometimes kids are acting out in ways and it's like, whoa, this came from left field, but there wasn't that like really solid um, understanding of how that child was progressing up to that point beforehand. And it's like with a lot of this stuff, I think kind of with what you're saying, like a car doesn't overheat and like totally break down and like blow the head gasket like out of nowhere. Like it was a process of like things like wearing down over time and everything and so there's usually warning signs and things happening leading up to all of this stuff for sure we've got um, some of the red flags of a victim as well as a pimp on our um, instagram and so it's in our highlights right there like you can go and just like screenshot it as well um, to kind of see some of those warning signs because sometimes it might be easier to identify warning signs in a child's friend versus them the yeah. child themselves too and the uh, Instagram is, I, I had it written here, the Instagram is uh, Red Light Rebellion. Actually, Red Light Rebellion can be re reached via their website at redlightrebellion.org. On Instagram and Facebook under Red Light Rebellion. On Twitter under the name Red Light Rebels. So that's actually, it's a fantastic resource. You mentioned the Instagram. The website is actually a, an excellent resource as well. If they are seeing those signs and symptoms, if the alarm bells are going off, if that parent thinks to themselves, something's going on here, how can they help? Whether it's their teen or somebody else's teen, if they're seeing the hallmarks of someone being trafficked, what do you do? I would call the National Human Trafficking Hotline number, which is 888-3737-888. Um, you can call that number if you're suspecting trafficking, and they can help ask questions to gauge the how likely that is a trafficking um, situation. The hotlines actually come out to Phoenix and worked with the anti-trafficking team here, the, the movement here, and so they know a lot of resources locally in Arizona that they can direct parents towards um, in those situations. Um, Trust Arizona, I think it's trustaz.org or .com, Mm -hmm. um, they're a great resource, too. They kind of network with a lot of anti-trafficking agencies and other other nonprofits that provide services um, for aftercare. And so they're able to kind of hear a situation and tell, hey, this is probably the best resource for you. Um, 
And then obviously I think we are huge fans of counseling, no matter what <laughs> yeah, someone's absolutely. going through or not going Definitely. through. So that's like, a, I think a huge thing too, like resource and, and being willing to try a couple different counselors for your child. It can take a while to The first one may not gels. be the right fit. And exactly. we tell parents that a lot. The rapport might not be there, the fit might not be there, but that doesn't mean give up on the process, Correct. find the one that is the right fit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned the National Human Trafficking Hotline once more, that's 1-888-373-7888. You can also text HELP or INFO to 233-733, and their website is humantraffickinghotline.org. We will include all this information in the show notes as well. I know you also speak on and educate on fighting sex trafficking by reducing the demand for it. Now, you've already touched on some of the things that tie into the demand, but let's go back to that. What is fueling the demand and what do our listeners need to know about that? Yeah, totally. So um, obviously supply and demand uh, with sex trafficking, people are um, wanting to act out sexually. And we see that one of the uh, really huge promoters of that step uh, is pornography. There was like a study we, or a stat we saw through Fight the New Drug, which is a great resource that about Amazing, yeah. 37% of um, recurring purchasers of prostitutes are acting out of some sort of um, pornography addiction or fantasy. Yeah. And so um, we see that it's because the, the way addiction works, which I'm sure you guys have talked about so much, uh, is that it progresses where eventually to get more of that dopamine release in the brain, there has to be something bigger and better um, to get that like... Uh, first high that people are chasing. And so eventually um, there's three levels of sex addiction. The first one um, is what we see now is what a lot of people are using internet pornography and kind of just sticking there, maybe even um, chat rooms here and there. And then the second level is where people start acting out more so in the real world, meeting people up, um, having interactions with others. Uh, And the third step is where it gets scary and where we see um, sex trafficking happening more. And that's where people start to look for um, things that are violent or abusive or degrading or just like um, a little bit darker for sure. Yeah. And so uh, it progresses to that point, though, because we know, um, you know, someone doesn't just wake up one day and they're like, oh, you know, on my way home from work, I'm going to grab some milk at the store and then I'm going to go stop by this place and do this. It doesn't happen like that. It's a process of being slowly desensitized. And uh, we see so many Pornography coming through so many different pores of our culture, whether it's through movies, through social, through magazines, through different artists, through pornography itself. Like it's being pushed in so many different ways. It's almost hard to um, see how much young people are being groomed um, to be victims or buyers for that matter. Um, But we see that it's 100 percent like the step taking people to there and it's absolutely not making any of the cause better at all for sure. We've heard some um, studies where they've looked at because 99% of um, buyers of commercial sex are men Um, and so uh, most of them aren't deviant. Most of them aren't trying to harm someone. And most of them might not even be looking for someone super young that's a teenager. Um, But a lot of those same people kind of aren't, don't care at the same time. They're like, they're, they're not asking the right questions. They're not doing their due diligence to be like a ethical consumer, if you can put it that way in this context. (laughs) Um, But what we find is that there are people that are deviant that are like wanting harm, but it doesn't matter which group someone falls into. Someone can be an adult and still be sex trafficked. Um, And then with the pornography, not only is that leading people into real life encounters where they're potentially physically encountering someone in sex trafficking, but we also know that pornography is another huge avenue for victims of trafficking to be trafficked. And so someone on the other side of the screen has no way to tell if 
that person's being trafficked or not that they're watching and getting off on. And so they're potentially fueling sex trafficking even just from a porn habit that they might not even consider an addiction. Um, and they think is, oh, it's not harming anyone. It's just me doing my own thing. Like doesn't affect anyone else when it actually very much might be what's keeping that person in sex trafficking. There was a, um, a news article that broke, I want to say within the last few months, about a mainstream pornography site mm-hmm. where it turns out that many of those who appeared on screen were trafficked, they were coerced. It, was, it wasn't, you know, consensual. It was it had all the hallmarks of an abusive situation. And this was a mainstream website that yep. people knew, and they said, oh, this is legitimate, and they yep. – whatever, however you and legitimize that. Exactly. Yeah. And so there, you talked about people who they didn't even know they were being part of that process that is victimizing those people, yet by producing the demand for it, they are part of that process as well. You talked about a study, and Brandon, you talked about dopamine. There was a study, and you may be familiar with it, I believe it was through Cambridge University, where they looked at the effect on dopamine. And what they did is they looked at pornography. They looked at people's levels while they were viewing pornography. They looked at people using methamphetamine or cocaine, people using opioids, and people actually having intercourse. And there's a graph that shows the sustained release of dopamine the entire Mm. time that the person is viewing pornography. Cocaine could not sustain the release of dopamine like that did. There was nothing. None of those drugs or intercourse could not replicate that line of dopamine on that chart. That's behaving like a drug. Totally. And then you talk about the process where somebody doesn't just wake up one day and either buy a, a person, you know, s- subscribe to human trafficking or act out violently sexually. Right. There's a process that builds up to that. For some people, it's a matter of these avenues that I've used before are not allowing me to get back up to that dopamine high, the same as somebody would need to use more cocaine, more methamphetamine. And so what it's starting to take for them is beginning to watch those more violent images or, God forbid, act out in those violent behaviors. And so that dopamine connection is huge. It is a drug. It is absolutely a drug. Yeah, no, you totally nailed it, Shane. It very much uh, is because if you took that much drugs for it to do that to your brain, you would die. That's why people (laughs) OD. Your heart would explode (laughs) with a stimulant. Yeah, you would be. That would be it. So when we draw that correlation in classrooms of porn is like a drug, kids are usually like, wait, does that mean... I can OD on porn. And we're like, no, you're not going to die. <laughs> um, but we see that because every time a new actor enters the room, every time you click on another image, another video, mm-hmm. which that's the way people use pornography, they're watching lots of different things. It's at the novelty same time. of it. Totally. Yeah. And every time that new person comes in, it's that another hit. And so mm-hmm. instead of um, like someone doing drugs, taking that hit, their dopamine level skyrocket and come back down, um, a porn user is essentially just like you said, redlining that dopamine release to where it stays up until that porn experience is over. And even if that doesn't descend into someone getting involved with human trafficking, think of your average high school student. Is your history homework suddenly very important? You no longer, how can you compare the dopamine release of I got an A on my paper to that dopamine release? Who also doesn't have a prefrontal cortex. Exactly. And so can't think through the consequences. (laughs) I don't want to go to football practice anymore because scoring a touchdown in the game cannot equal that level of dopamine release. Well, and then it's stunting the the growth and maturity of their prefrontal cortex as well. So they've even like shown brain scans where in extreme forms of like pornography addiction, that prefrontal cortex actually is smaller. It's it's shrank. Um, And so I think that's where 
pornography is so common in our culture and we've even heard parents that are just like oh like it's fine if my kid watches porn it's part of growing up they're just like it's sex education it's you know school isn't doing it right and so and it's like no like you're not understanding the harmful effects of it to their brain that those long-term consequences are just devastating and how it's portraying relationships you're talking about a parent dismissing it as sex education Mm -hmm. it does not portray relationships in a healthy average or normal way and the idea is that it plants in people's heads of this is what a relationship is supposed to be like is no, not healthy. Not at all. That's not sex education. No. One of the strategies or solutions that Red Light Rebellion speaks about um, is fighting for real love, which makes it easier to recognize and avoid counterfeit love. What do you mean by real love and what are the facets that make it up? Yeah, yeah so um, we talk about healthy relationships and because we see so many students, they uh, were like, hey, what does real love look like? And they're like, not beating your spouse, not cheating on someone, not doing these terrible like deal breaker things. And we're like, yeah, that's a good start. But what like does it look like? Not what does it not look like? Um, and so, yeah, I'll let you talk more about it. So we kind of think of it um, at like kind of like money, which sounds kind of weird, but I used to be a teller at a bank. And so part of um, my training was learning how to counter identify counterfeit money. And what's interesting is in that training, they didn't teach me all the different ways that money can look fake. They taught me the one way that real money looks because real money feels a certain way, has certain fibers, codes, watermarks on it. So if anything came across my counter that wasn't exactly that, I knew it was fake and it needs to be needed to be reported. So in the same way, we want to teach students what is real love? What does that actually look like? Because so many times kids just think it's those fuzzy feelings, that romance that they see in the movies. And it's like, that's there's actually a scientific term for it, which I never knew before, like a year and a half ago, called limerence. Um, and it lasts about 18 to 24 months in the beginning of a relationship. The honeymoon phase. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And it shuts down all of those kind of like red flags <laughs> in the relationship. And so the kids are just like, this is it. This is love. And are like, there's more than that. Love isn't a feeling. It's action. It's how we treat someone else. Um, it's a safety that's created in the context of that relationship. It's healthy and secure attachment. Um, and so we want to teach students what that is because if they can see – because traffickers aren't always violent. We just did like a myth-busting video that we released last night talking about how it's not always violence. There's a lot of psychological warfare going on. And so if you think it's just the absence of violence, you're missing a lot. But if we know everything that goes into it, it's going to be easier and more obvious to tell if someone's faking it with us or if that relationship's not healthy for us in the first place. So it's something much more subtle that a lot of people are looking for. You're talking about the absence of violence, the absence of – dishonesty, mm-hmm. but it's far more subtle than that. And, and the manipulation involved with counterfeit love mm-hmm. is yeah. much more subtle than that as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about you know talking to students and being in classrooms, and I know that you've spoken to, I believe it's over 100,000. You've done over 1,000 presentations. During that time, I know that there has to be a, a number of victories and highlights for you. Mm-hmm. What in particular stands out in your mind, one or two situations that you can think of where you said to yourself at the end of the day, this is absolutely making a difference. I'm, I, I, this is absolutely worth doing. What stands out to you? I know there's, there's, it's probably hard to pick one. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll let Brianna go second, uh, and I'll go first. <laughs> Ladies second this time. Uh, just, this is the only time, though. Uh, <laughs> I would say for me probably there's been several occasions I can actually think of some of these students' faces where – um, either at the end of the day or later on social media, um, just them DMing us or letting us know how um, us being there, the content that we shared, um, caring about them while we were there uh, really gave them a lot of hope 
uh, from their situation, whether um, the ones I'm specifically thinking of are students that had like actually been sexually abused before um, and just how much that's defined them in their experience and how us being there broke a part of that for them. Um, and that is absolutely something that at the end of the day, I'm like, yep, let's do this again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I have two that came to mind. Um, one piggybacks off that. We had a student um, that shared in the classroom, which was really brave, that she had ex- had a history of sexual abuse in her past. And then it was probably like a month or two later, uh, messaged us on social and was like, thank you so much for coming. Like what you guys talked about encouraged me to actually get counseling. Um, mm-hmm. She got like a diagnosis, was in with the right type of therapist. And so that was so cool to see like that's long term. Like. progress for that child um, or that teenager like they're actually going to be more equipped going into like adulthood and the rest of their life um, than anything else so that was like really cool for us and then we also got a message a year and a half maybe two years ago now Mm -hmm. from a student um, that was saying that she had been messaging a guy on snapchat for a couple months as soon as she turned 18 he started asking her for nudes which that part wasn't shocking to her because we just talked about how common nudes are. But he started saying that he would send her money through Snapchat for each picture or video she'd send. And that's where she was like, oh, that's like very sketchy. That kind of sounds, it reminded her of what we had talked about. Um, And so she had kept the red flag card of a pimp and of a victim in her wallet for three years. So she had to have been a senior when this happened, but we had been in her classroom when she was a freshman. She kept it that long, realized the guy fit like a ton of the warning signs of a pimp, was able to block the account, messaged us, said thank you so much for coming to my school and possibly saving my life. So it's really that one where we're just like, it is working. Like it's so yeah. hard to measure prevention, <laughs> but the more we're getting, and we're hearing more and more stories like that, specifically with those red flag cards, which yeah. is so cool because being like, I still have mine or this helped me see that I was being targeted by someone online. It's so cool to see that, that it's actually working. I see the comments that you get, the public ones. I follow Red Light Rebellion on Instagram. If the public comments you get are as glowing as they are, I can only imagine the degree to which that's true for your private messages, your DMs as well. Yeah. It's it's really cool seeing and, – and it's it can be challenging. I mean it's being in this field of work to connect with kids, connect with middle school or high school students. Obviously what you're doing is working and so I applaud you for doing that. Thank you. Before we close um, – What is one, finally, one actionable step that you'd encourage our listeners to take after finishing this episode that can make an important difference in the lives of the young people they know? One thing that they could do that they could actually put into play upon finishing this episode, and it could be something very simple that could benefit the kids in their lives, whether it's their own children, their grandchildren, or kids they work with or mentor. Yeah, I would say – and kind of to piggyback on what we talked about earlier, the one of the vice detectives that we've worked with, that was a vice detective for over 13 years, um, working sex trafficking cases solely, told us that the main reason she sees sex trafficking happening is because of the breakdown of the family. And so um, I think like a huge step would be think of like one thing that you could do to intentionally like engage that young person uh, and build a relationship, something like fun or lighthearted or um, something like a if a deep conversation comes up, awesome. If not, like it was a great experience that built that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking connection too. So kind of figuring out some way to let that child know that you care about them. Yeah. Um, I think with teenagers, it can be really difficult because they're in that natural phase of pushing back um, and ex- like kind of flexing like their independence that and they sometimes want. it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's their job description. <laughs> it really is, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, that relationship building, I think one thing that I, 
my mom is very intentional relationship building with my brother and I growing up, which I'm so, so grateful for. But she never played the radio when we were in the car. She always talked to us. We'd always have conversations. Um, there were very little distractions um, when she was actually with us as far as engaging us and having some of those hard conversations. And so even asking your child, hey, like I listened to this podcast. They talked about sex trafficking. Have you ever heard of that? Or they talked about nudes. Like do kids like do that? You know, like mm-hmm. kind of open up those questions and be curious about your child's yeah. experience. I think that's kids want to be known. Everyone wants to be known. Um, but teenagers definitely think that they are alone. And so um, when we can ask those questions and then be honest on our shortcomings or our shame um, and use it as a teaching, um, uh, a, a way to teach. A lot of people are like, oh, I can't talk about um, moral surrounding sexuality or the internet or like things like this because or drugs because I've made these mistakes. And it's like, no, you're the exact person that can come in and say, hey, like I've made these decisions and I know the fallout from it and I'm going to be real and honest with you so, you, I can, so you're set up to make the best decisions possible. Excellent. You mentioned your mom turning the radio off. I think the modern day equivalent of that is us putting our phones away. If we're going to ask our kids to regulate their device use, we we need to to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. We highly advocate parents, regular family dinners. If you can't do that, you mentioned a car ride. Maybe your window of opportunity is a 15-minute car ride to and from school or to and from sports practice. Seize that moment. Have that car ride be the car ride where your phone is put away, their phone is put away. And as Brandon and Brianna mentioned, you are creating that connection in terms of preventing human trafficking or any other behavioral health issue that we speak on and on my kid. That is a major part of the solution. Red Light Rebellion can be reached via their website at redlightrebellion.org, on Instagram and Facebook under Red Light Rebellion, and on Twitter under the name Red Light Rebels. I'm assuming somebody already snapped up Red Light Rebellion on Twitter. It was too many characters, (laughs) actually. Too many characters. Waiting for them to expand that. (laughs) I've had that happen. As always, we will include those links, not my kids' social media links, and the crisis lines that we talked about during the show in the show notes. Brandon, Brianna, you've been absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much for being on Win This Year. Thank you so much for having us, Shane. We really appreciate it. You guys do amazing work, so it's really great. Thank you. As always on Win This Year, we'd like to give you a trio of resources. If you are dealing with thoughts or feelings of suicide or you are helping someone who is, there is hope, there is help available. The first is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Next is the Teen Lifeline, 1-800-248-8336. 1-800-248-TEEN. And finally, the Crisis Text Line. Text the word LISTEN to 741-741. All of these resources are 24-7, 365, free, and they're anonymous. Thanks once again to our guests, Brianna and Brandon Vales of Red Light Rebellion. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear@notmykid.org. Win this year at notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes along with all the links for Not My Kid social media. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Thank you again for listening to Win This Year.